1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett-Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Melissa Ford about her new book, A Brick in the Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression. Dr. Melissa Ford, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
1: I'm so happy to be here. Wonderful, and we're happy to have you here. So I wonder if you could just talk uh, a little bit about uh, yourself, just sort of introduce us to you.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, uh, we're going to be talking a lot about the Midwest today. So I got to come out and say I am a native Midwesterner. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I went to college in Wellesley College. Um, I basically tried to get as far away from the Midwest as possible. and We'll come back to why that matters. um, And then returned to St. Louis uh, for my uh, PhD in American Studies from St. Louis University. I now teach African American history at uh, Slippery Rock University, which is about an hour north of Pittsburgh. So still in the Midwestern area. Um, and uh, I'm just so thrilled to see this project come to completion. It was um, my PhD dissertation and a long labor, let's just say that. So uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me, excited to, to talk more about the implications of all my background for, for this project.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. And I wonder if you could tell us how you sort of came to this project?
2: Right, and so that's that's where it is. Like I was a native Midwesterner. I was born in Missouri. I was born in St. Louis, and I kind of thought I knew the history. But the thing was, I was born. I was a white woman born in the suburbs of St. Louis, and the histories of Missouri and the area and the region we learned were very reflective of the mainstream stereotypes. It's a prairie. It's this conservative, it's flyover land. It's the American heartland. It's where the democratic values of our nation are. And if we learned anything about local history, it was Lewis and Clark, or maybe it would be the gateway to the West and the St. Louis Arch, maybe if we got to the 20th century. And I realized as i Uh, went down my my further studies in in my PhD program, that there's this history that is very much intentionally marginalized and that of the history of uh, the black working class in St. Louis, and then of course, the rest of uh, the Midwest. And so I really do have to get a shout out to uh, Dr. Heidi Artizone at St. Louis University, um, who offered this class called Mini Midwest, Race and Citizenship in the Midwest. And I was like, oh, the Midwest, I'm a Midwesterner, I can take this no problem, because I really didn't have a huge interest in the Midwest. But then once we started, and learning this this tragic, violent, but beautiful and inspiring uh, story of, of people of color, and specifically African Americans in the Midwest, I began to say, well, there's something here that, you know, white girls from the suburbs of St. Louis need to know. And so from there, the project kind of took off. It's... Uh, started with kind of looking at the working class and what they're doing during the Great Depression, then realizing things are happening in Chicago and Detroit and Cleveland at the exact same time. And there are parallels that we can draw, there are similarities we can draw, but there are also distinctions and particularities that really make this uh, period so alive uh, and worthy of study. And it's worthy of study whether I say so or not, just because it it is. <sighs>
1: And so in your introduction uh, to this work, uh, you talk about sort of Midwestern black radicalism. I wonder if you could talk a little, bit, a little bit about that and how it relates to the black radical tradition and then also sort of how it relates to the larger project that you have here.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you can't say the black radical tradition without saying Cedric Robinson. He, like, wrote the book, uh, Black Marxism and the Making of the Black Radical Tradition. And uh, it was it, it opened up this immense floodgates of scholarship on... Uh, People of African descent and Marxist radical ideologies and practices throughout the course of, of world history, and so using Robinson kind of as an inspiration, I decided when and where do my does my place as a historian come to uh, to amplify these stories of of particular characters, and for this I kind of go back to this um, phrase that Robin uh, Kelly just. I uh, gave in a conference mm, two years ago uh, saying that, you know, uh, Cedric Robinson went beyond Marx. He went beyond Marx and looking at race. But we as historians of today, scholars of today, academics and activists of today have to go beyond Robinson. And so when we go beyond Robinson, we're looking at local, uh, local regions, we're looking at women, we're looking at these marginalized communities and these stories that have been um, erased, essentially. Well, not, but not completely. And so as my goal as a historian is to amplify those stories. So Midwestern Black radicalism, going back to that. Uh, I, I have to admit, I was a grad student when I thought of that term. And I was like, oh my God, did I just make up a new term? And I Googled it, and I did. And I was like, I need to patent this now. I need to get my trademark. And you know, as a grad student, how exciting it is when you can contribute something brand new. Um, but then I had to define it. And that's where the problem came in. Uh, But if we look at Cedric Robinson and seeing how we can not necessarily isolate, but insert ourselves in this particular historical context of the Midwest in the Great Depression. We can see then how uh, things like patterns of migration, uh, light and heavy industry, uh, domestic work for for black women, uh, de facto segregation, uh, poor uh, relief and welfare for families, all kind of culminate into this uh, very uh, specific moment of social unrest, and that's unrest that is involved, uh, that is, um, you know, identified by the actions of these black women. Because I say that black Midwestern radicalism is, the core of it is these black women's stories. Um, and so, yeah, so we're taking this, this tradition of black radicals and we're taking um, Cedric Robinson and just pushing it to the next level. And I say we, because I'm not the only one doing this. As much as I want to tout that I made up this term, (laughs) Western Black radicalism, there are so many other scholars who are are currently uh, with this project. Maybe not on the Midwest, but definitely looking at how Black women uh, were carriers of the Black radical tradition, are carriers of the Black radical tradition, and um, need to be amplified more in our nation's history.
1: And you also use the, the concept of sort of community feminism throughout much of this work. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that as well.
2: Yeah, so that idea comes from Eula Taylor, who I think that was that was her big term that she came up with. Uh, and and she's specifically talking about the UNI, the Universal Negro Improvement Association in Detroit, and how African-American women kind of negotiated their position. Because UNI, obviously a black nationalist organization, a lot of uh, masculine imagery and ideology, And Eula Taylor basically makes this argument that this wasn't all that was happening. Black women in this organization were finding a place for themselves. They're challenging uh, those ideas of masculinity and uh, uh, racial hierarchy. They are exhibiting certain traits of feminism that today we recognize as, as feminism, but they absolutely didn't back then. And Keisha Blaine also kind of draws on that, saying like these women in the UNIA were using uh, proto-feminist ideas, um, because at no point were they just giving up and rolling over to the patriarchy, to uh, white-dominated society, to uh, capitalist oppression. Uh, they were negotiating and finding the role in voices and what their roles would be in that.
1: And so you just spoke about sort of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, and that plays a large role, I think, in each one of these studies. Uh, I wonder if you could just give us uh, just a little bit about how that actually sort of primed the pump for uh, radical organizing in a lot of these different areas.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a a great way to put it. It primed the other conditions. And for this, I got to give a shout out to Eric uh, McDuffie, who's currently doing work on the Black Midwest and uh, UNIA. Um, And so I did draw from some of his work. But... um, uh I'm not the first historian to, to kind of say that the UNI has primed the, the stage or whatever, set the stage for further black radicalizing organization. But to say that, you know, it happened in Detroit, St. Louis, Cleveland and Chicago in very similar ways uh, shows that these cities are all operating with similar tendencies right the fact that there's the fact of segregation the fact that unemployment of black workers is twice that of white workers the fact that black women have very little voice uh, so the UNA unia sought to address those issues in its particular na- black nationalist form But when Garvey's deported and the organization doesn't die, it undergoes a transformation and that transformation loses members. Um, It's a very particular point in in world history. It's the end of uh, the roaring 20s, right? It's the end of the 20s and it's world's greatest economic depression and so when garvey isn't there when garveyism isn't there to answer those questions of the black working class this is where the communist party sweeps in and really the communist party has been training for this since their beginning right they're waiting for capitalism to fail and come in with uh, communism as the answer to working classes woes Uh, but i mean more recently in 1929 the communist party is saying uh, has entered what they call the third period, where they're looking to uh, extend communism and radical unions to black workers and black women specifically. So when we talk about the UNIA's importance, of course, it's important for the amazing work it did in the 1920s. But that groundwork it laid for black workers to think about, hey, maybe white-dominated society doesn't have the answers. Maybe the Communist Party, who is now looking to organize Black workers, looking to organize Black women, maybe they have those answers. And we can really see that played out on the ground level. Uh, Chicago especially, it was a hotbed of uh, UNIA activity. So when the UNIA kind of faded in its um, influence, uh, those individuals picked right back up with the Communist Party. There are several uh, women in particular who were like, you know, I was looking for something to do. Not, not like in those terms, but I was like, I'm looking for a place to fight. The Communist Party came in and helped us organize. They gave us those uh, that platform. They gave us opportunities to learn. And, um, and that's not unique in Chicago, but it's a, a very important moment uh, of transition for black radical tradition.
1: And so the first study that you have in this book uh, is in Detroit. Um, And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the black women uh, that are organizers in Detroit that you sort of highlight in this in chapter one.
2: Right. And I think, honestly, the best way to do that is just to tell you about some of these individual women, give them names, because honestly, uh, I I love doing that. I'm a historian because I love telling stories. And it's it's hard uh, for a lot of these women because they were stories that were intentionally marginalized, intentionally paved over, sometimes by their allies, by white communists, sometimes by white-dominated press, sometimes by the liberal black press. and so I try to tell as much of those stories as I can. And so for Detroit, the woman who really exemplifies it is uh, is Rose Billups. Rose Billups is the wife of Joseph Billups, who is a black auto worker. And so we're talking Detroit, 1930s. We're talking automobile, uh, automobile industry reigns supreme. Ford, obviously, Henry Ford is one of the icons, but just the entire city is under the... Uh, under the thumb of the auto industry, and so her, so Rose's husband Joseph works in the automobile industry, but he's also getting involved in this radical politics. White communists and are coming and saying, "Hey, join our, our forces. We can do something to fight, uh, uh, to organize in this time and place of the Great Depression in uh, Detroit." And Detroit had always had some. Uh, organizing the automobile industries, but never really included black workers. So when black workers get involved in organizing the automobile industries, this is, you know, this is uh, radicalism turned up to a next level. But where does that leave the women? Black women in Detroit are not going to be employed in this heavy industry. The numbers are like less than hundreds, whereas tens of thousands of black men are. But that doesn't mean they weren't involved. Right. That doesn't mean they didn't have anything at stake. Uh, Rose watched as her husband, Joseph, tried to get a job and then was immediately fired. Got another job, was immediately fired. His radical activism was too much of a threat to these employers. And so she's the one who's holding a job as a as a hat maker in the city. She's the one who is supporting him. She's the one when they have rallies uh, in in parks in the center of town, she's the one who's collecting bones and meat and beans from anybody in the neighborhood. She's the one throwing them in a pot and serving these workers who are on strike and can't afford to, to feed themselves. And just a fun little story. Joseph later said that her, her cooking wasn't that good, but, you know, it filled these workers up. And I just like, really, Joseph, you got to got thrown around the bus like that. But uh, but again, because Rose, just because Rose wasn't in those factories on that those uh, lines building the cars, she had something so much at stake at this. Um, Another example, she uh, raised money for The Working Woman, a magazine uh, that uh, addressed the particular issues of uh, women in the Communist Party. And once the uh, automobile unions kind of got going towards the end of the the 30s, uh, we see women like Rose become even bigger players in organizing factories, specifically Ford here. And if you think about it, black workers are always going to it's it's. Been the historical truth that or unfortunate truth that for uh, most of american history up to this point black workers were not um recruited into labor unions because they were again for historical reasons used as strike breakers and so when uh communists come in and then eventually we'll see the um aew auto workers uh, oh i get all these okay the auto workers union was the communists and then uh the uaw united auto workers uh was the cio the the more centered uh mainstream uh labor organization so when they finally come in they're trying to get these black workers okay so they're trying to get these black workers in the in the factories to to join their union these black workers are like i don't know we haven't had great history we're not sure about this how do you get black workers these black men to join the unions you get their wives. And so Rose Billups is is meeting with the uh, auto workers' wives in dark alleys. She's like hiding pamphlets. She's going door to door. She is organizing to such an extent that uh, she is, you know, an auto worker organizer, even though she wasn't employed in the factories. And I think the most remarkable thing about Rose is her husband was really well known. Joseph Billups, if you go to Wayne State University archives there, he's like, you can get a ton of information on him. Um, and there's this one interview with, with him and his wife and the interviewer is like, oh, Joseph, tell me about this, tell me about this, tell me about this. And at one point Rose, and this is in like the seventies, at one point Rose says like, excuse me, can I take a minute to tell you about how the women helped organize this union? And that's just so indicative, right? Uh, of of uh, black women in this, this struggle, um, just because they weren't there on the, the factory lines then their stories aren't as important, and really, that's what my work and project here says: is their stories are so so important uh, for truly understanding um, labor history in the United States.
1: Yeah, and you talk about sort of the you know the Ford Motor Company, and if we're talking about Detroit, it looms very very large upon this period of time in the entire history of Detroit, right? Uh, one of the events that you highlight in this in this chapter is the uh, Ford Hunger March. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that, sort of its aftermath, um, and also sort of how Black women were involved in that event as well.
2: Right. So the the Ford uh, Hunger March was organized in 1931 to highlight the poor wages for Ford factory workers. And Ford, first of all, no relation. Uh, (laughs) It's just got to get that out there. I I, am don't think I am at least. Um, so Ford had cut wages repeatedly for the great depression, even though he's saying, Oh, we're fine. The business is fine. His, his workers are making pennies. Right. And so, uh, with the local, um, radical, uh, activists, parts of the unemployed councils, parts of the AWU, uh, even the Socialist party was there for uh, a bit, came together and said, Hey, we're going to have this massive meeting, massive protest and march onto, um, one of the Ford factories to show them we're all in this together. You know, it's classic grassroots activism. Um, they do so and are, it's, it's one of those, moments in history. We don't know who cast the first stone, but uh, protesters said that the cops fired first. The law enforcement said that the protesters were throwing rocks. Um, Ultimately, uh, law enforcement opens fire. Four uh, workers, protesters, marchers are, are instantly killed. Another dies a few days later. A black man dies a few days later from his injuries. And so this confirms everything for black workers. Henry Ford is the worst. He's the devil. They have uh, signs that say, uh, we wanted food. Ford gave us bullets. And so he's incredibly vilified. Uh, And it's really a a moment of uh, picking up steam for labor movement in, uh, in Detroit. And that story has been told. People have written those books. Less Told is a story of maddie woodson and so here's another story where i get to tell about an extraordinary woman maddie woodson uh, was a black woman uh, migrant, a migrant southern migrant to to detroit who was not working in the factories you know she wasn't this laborer but she had a huge stake in the success of black men and their uh black working class in detroit so she had joined the communist party she was there at the march on the front lines and when the uh, officers opened fire maddie went to go tend to the wound of a white communist who had fallen. She tore off a piece of her skirt and used it to stop the bleeding in this incredible moment of interracial class solidarity. And apparently, now this all comes from an interview that was conducted uh, a few years ago from another um, black protester uh, at the hunger march and uh so i mean it's yes you know a few few years in hindsight uh but uh, this moment where david moore is, is the man who's giving this interview he says this this moment of a black woman who is bending down and stopping the bleeding of a white communist and white comrade is just so amazing and then the ford motor company took a photo of it but that or The local press took a photo of it, but then Henry Ford squashed it and no one ever saw the photograph. And that was the end of the story. And so honestly, I went to Detroit uh, archives looking for that photograph, but it doesn't exist. Um, But that story exists, that Maddie Woodson would go risk her life uh, to be a part of this struggle. Um, and she continued to. She continued to host communist meetings in her household. In the 1950s, she was named in the Red Scare and the uh, congressional hearings. Uh, she kind of falls off the radar. It's hard to to tell what happened to some of these women because they have this brief moment. And then and then a historian, you're kind of grasping at straws. But uh, so women like Maddie Woodson, uh, definitely a part of the Communist Party, risking her life. There, women like Rose Billups, a wife of a black steel, a black auto worker, supporter, cook, uh, also there, and so that really plays into a lot of the stories of these women um, in the Midwest. Is there's not one story; they all have their beautiful, unique, tragic stories, and I try as best as possible to to recreate and to amplify those stories and their voices but uh historians of marginalized communities will will know it's it's it's
1: very hard and so in chapter two you take us to your backyard to uh saint louis um i wonder if you could just talk talk to us about another event that you thought that you uh narrate there, the fun scene strike. Um, And I wonder if you could also talk about the role of the Communist Party and sort of the aftermath of that strike as well.
2: Yeah. Oh, boy. St. Louis. Uh, And so first enter with this, knowing that it's it's really crazy to write about your own backyard. Uh, It's interesting and also very disturbing to to know that history. Um, But uh, Kiana Urban actually brought this to my attention with her work uh, and the Funston strike. And I sought to look at this this moment, uh, 1933 strike, where over a thousand women, a thousand black women struck from this uh, series of factories in St. Louis and actually won their demands. I tried to ask that question, well, what else is happening in St. Louis and these other cities that makes this possible? And so Funston Nut Factory, let's tell a story. Carrie Smith, Carrie Smith is uh, 43, oh, I forget her age, but she's a middle-aged black woman who's a migrant from Mississippi. She's been working at the same uh, factory for over 10 years and it's called the Nunston Nunston, Nut Factory, and she is employed as a nut picker. So basically, pecans come in from the south. Uh, they're shipped up the Mississippi River. Pecans in their shells come in, and uh, women like Carrie Smith sit at these long tables and crack the nuts for hours and hours a day, just taking out the nut. Meat, and then separate it from the nut shells, and it's these long tables. It's low lighting. It's freezing in the winter. It's stifling in the summer. Uh, the nuts themselves emit this like particles in the air, so everyone's always choking. It's miserable, and so once the Great Depression hits, uh, of course the wages for these black women are, are slashed again and again and again, and so it's at this point when we see white Communist Party in St. Louis pick up steam. And there's some facts lost to history here. How does it really start? But at the end of the or the beginning of the story is we have white communists sponsoring a meeting saying, hey, women who work at the Funston Nut Factory, come join us and we will help you strike. And so Carrie Smith is there. She is like, I am all in it and I just can't imagine this moment. She's a middle, middle-aged black woman. She goes to church every day. She's a migrant from Mississippi. She, uh, I, I have a picture of her in, um, in, the, in the book and she just is not what you think as a radical communist. And that's why I love it so much. Cause she's like, guys, I'm here, I'm showing up. And in the most inspiring part uh, of the book and where my title comes from. She's leading a uh, demonstration at City Hall. Uh, the Funston pickers, as they're known, had been striking for about a week or so, and they're kind of losing steam. Um, and so Carrie Smith is on the steps of City Hall. She's trying to get them rallied. She's saying, you know, girls, we got to stick together. We can do this. I know it's hard. And the story goes, she has a Bible in one hand and a brick in the other. And she says, girls, we cannot lose. And so this imagery of this woman with a book, with a brick and a Bible, just, it it really, it captured me. I was like, I have to, I have to use this Um, because it really symbolizes what these women uh, during this time were about. They were about that brick. I mean, literally sometimes they had to use bricks to defend themselves. They were militant in their operations. They were unceasing in their actions, but also the Bible literally and metaphorically carrie smith was a church-going woman she brought the bible every day to those picket lines she led people in prayer and hymns and so you have this militancy and you have this religious woman and you have it and they're not in competition it's it's a conversation for carrie smith and for many of the funston nutpickers, and then many of the women in the other cities as well and so the communist party this is in St. Louis, especially was, I don't want to say this, but they were kind of, well, I'll say it. They were racist. They didn't think black workers in St. Louis could be organized. And before 1930, there are no blacks in the communist party in St. Louis. Uh, in fact, they got a good deal on a, a house uh, to rent as their party headquarters, but they didn't want to rent it because it was in a black neighborhood and they thought um, property values would depreciate. After the funston strike after they won their demands after this amazing show of uh, interracial solidarity, and these black women came out amazing and carrie smith is you know badass with a brick and a bible the communist party i mean they're they're selling chitlings on the street because they're like oh black workers look we're here for you we're we're supporting you and it's like and and that's often the story is the communist party manipulate not manipulated. the communist party used the actions of these women for their own, for the party's own gain. And that's an argument, again, I'm not the first to make. That's quite often been the historical truth, is that these Black workers were pawns, if you will, in the Communist Party uh, hands. And that's only part of the story, though, because as we see with Carrie. uh Carrie Smith and, you know, Rose Phillips and Maddie Woodson and all these other women, uh, they are not pawns. They're not puppets. They're not jumping because uh, Stalin says how high. Right. Um, They are interpreting their unique circumstances and their unique lived experiences to inform their activism. And now Irvine Painter um, says it best when she says that communists, black communists during this time made the party their own. And so then my kind of addition to that is Midwestern black radicalism was a part of making their party uh, their own. Because Carrie Smith, again, fades from the records. Did she remain a communist? I don't know. Did the Communist Party defend her or, you know, support her? I I don't know. Uh, But she has this brief moment where she's on the steps of City Hall with a brick and a Bible and just I love that.
1: And you, So in, in chapter three, you take us to Chicago, which has a long history of sort of radical organizing. Um, and you say that uh, Midwestern black radicalism manifested differently in this city than the other cities uh, in this, in, that you're studying in this project. Uh, I wonder if you could sort of explain that a little bit.
2: Right. So got to give a shout out to I'm just going to name all the historians I've built on because there's so much work that has been done. And I'm building on that. That So Randy Storch wrote Red Chicago, which is about radicalism in in Chicago. And she does make mention of of uh, black communists. Um, and the first thing that's different about Chicago is it was ready to go for radical organizing. I mean, this is the birth of the eight hour workday. This is the Haymarket Riot uh, place. This is just a, a real hotbed of radical activity. And then when you couple into that, the UNIA had a particularly active branch there. You have uh, black working class being very politically minded and agitated and ready to go. And so when the communists uh, begin specifically targeting black neighborhoods, uh, the unemployment or the unemployed council start reaching out to, to workers, uh, Chicago and black Chicagoans in particular are, are ready to respond. And, um, Yeah. So that makes Chicago very different. In St. Louis, you didn't have that presence before 1930. But by 1930 in Chicago, it was there. It was ready. It was ripe for the action.
1: Yeah. And some of this also sort of uh, comes up in some campaigns that have sort of shortcomings as well. Right. So you talk about the don't buy campaign that happened. I wonder if you could talk about that and some of the shortcomings uh, that you see with that project.
2: Right. And so so that's the part, one part of why Chicago was so, you know, ready to radicalize was because Black Chicago, you know, what they call Bronzeville or the Black Belt, um, uh, were not unified, but had undergone their own sort of renaissance in the, the 1920s and had their uh, their black newspapers, their black banks. You had their, the black sports teams and all this kind of uh, legacy that had been building. And part of that was these newspapers, specifically the Chicago Whip, uh, which in 1929, kind of on the eve of, of the Great Depression was saying, hey, we are a black community that holds power. We should do something with this power. And black workers can't get jobs at certain hotels or restaurants or banks or other industries. And so the Chicago whip says, hey, don't buy where you can't work. And that becomes a don't buy campaign. And they're not the first to do this. This is a boycott, right? Uh, But it's a very particular iteration on the eve and then beginning of the Great Depression. And it was successful, right? Uh, Hard to completely measure the the success of the boycott but many black workers did get employed in these you know middle-class uh jobs which is incredible which is a huge success and the movement the don't buy campaign went on for for several years but when you're talking about the early great depression and you're talking about um, black banks were the first to fail black workers are the first to be laid off. Unemployment for for black workers is significantly double, if not triple in some states, uh, higher for black workers. That those few jobs weren't enough. And the Don't Buy campaign relied on black consumerism, on their purchasing power. And at the end of the day, capitalism working its way. And so in light of such economic devastation uh many african-american workers then in chicago are looking beyond that sort of more conservative approach and so again when the communists come in and say hey we're going to we're going to strike we're going to stick it to the man we're going to protest outside of black politicians homes we're going to feed you we're going to do all these you know um bread-and-butter issues as well as takedown capitalism, uh, they already had a receptive audience.
1: And so you, you have two events um, I feel like that are sort of pivotal in this chapter too. So you have the Chicago massacre um, and then also the strike that happens at the uh, Sopkin factories. And I wonder if you could talk about those two and how they sort of play a role in this study.
2: Yeah so the uh, Chicago, Chicago massacre as as you say is uh, was a riot in August of 1931 and these riots were so okay so it's the great depression black families can't get work. They can't pay their rent, and they're commonly evicted. Uh, it happens in Cleveland too, in particular. There are like three thousand evictions a year, and it's just insane. Um, and so there's one particular eviction going on in Chicago, and it's it's a, it's a black woman who is you know trying to make her way, and a uh, rumor goes around the neighborhood that she's been harassed by white law enforcement. So people gather, people are ready. They're agitated. Somebody throws a rock, somebody fires a shot. And at the end of the day, we have several of the protesters killed. And this becomes a huge rallying cry, just like the Ford hunger March. Uh, a community rallies behind it. This is another important marker for uh, black workers, uh, activism, but also for their education, knowing that, hey, if we come together, white uh, dominated society is scared and they will react with violence, but there's power in numbers. And the Communist Party was consistently there to to remind them of that. And so we do have a lot of Chicago workers, uh, black Chicago workers join the Communist Party after this incident, um, saying that, hey, communists are the only ones looking out for us. We're here. We're there for them. And with that then, you have another story similar to St. Louis. Uh, We have black women working in horrible working conditions in the Sopkin factories, which make house aprons. Um, And someone in the communist party, uh, a black communist comes to the Sopkin women and saying, hey, you saw what we did in St. Louis. We can help you get a union in Chicago. And so this happens literally a month after the organizing in St. Louis. And so this is why I argue there's a Midwestern black radicalism. There are themes going on here. There's currents. There's uh, after effects. It's all building on each other in, the, in this region. And so Sapkin factories, um, it's it's a, it's a brutal, brutal strike. The, these women are attacked on the street by police and strike breakers. Uh, they are, you know, devastated in terms of their living conditions and any sort of welfare they can get, it's a a very hard-fought victory. And uh, eventually they do win their demands and showing that there is room for Black radicalism. And I think the important thing here is they're organizing as as garment workers um, in the spring of 1933. At the end of 1933, the whole country will go on this huge uh, garment worker strikes led by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was the mainstream union. So we're seeing here black women not only be like the first, but like they're the harbingers. Right. They're doing it and being successful at it before mainstream unions even thought about it. Um, and so, yeah, so Sopkin, the Chicago Massacre, both incredibly important events that uh you help radicalize the Black community to these points of, of really important um,
1: success. And so, your your last study takes us to Cleveland, uh, where you say that uh, Black people experience race uh, differently uh, from Black people in the other cities in this study. Um, and so, I wonder if you could talk about sort of why and how that is.
2: Yeah. So, Cleveland was not originally on my project or on my list it's because no one thinks about Cleveland. And I'm sorry. I love Cleveland. My, my visits there have been great. Uh, but I was, you know, so focused on this kind of more central Midwest um, and those cities that were known for their radicalism. And Cleveland, as it turns out, was, had both radical and not so radical tendencies. Uh, the established Black middle upper class in Cleveland was really pretty conservative and pretty middling and liberal uh, on the eve of the Great Depression. But with the newcomers, the Southern migrants during the Great Migration, we saw that dynamic change. And we'll see that uh, Cleveland's past as a radical city um, really come to light. And so like Cleveland itself was... um, a point for for white radicalism specifically uh farmers and uh light and heavy organized industry industrial organizing and so when we have this influx of black workers from the south saying hey that liberal attitude of accepting you know can, capitalism in these conditions isn't going to work anymore hey that white attitude of only white workers should be organized that's not going to work anymore you have this huge um moment of possibility and that's why I, Uh, The chapter for Cleveland is uh, Revolution and Reform, because you have you got both.
1: And uh, you have a number of uh, black women that you talk about in this chapter also that sort of engaged in activism and also politics. I wonder if you could highlight a few of those and tell just a little bit of their stories.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, just so many wonderful stories here. Um, Mary Tabb. Let's talk about her. She was uh, out of work uh, woman during this time. She lived in a highly industrialized area, a black neighborhood that was, you know, didn't uh, get the the funds necessary. And, uh, you know, just a rundown neighborhood. Um, one day. The unemployed council, so these these radical organizers, literally came through her neighborhood and signed her up saying like, Hey, do you want to do something about your situation? And she's like, damn right. I do. This is bullshit. And so she joins the unemployed councils. She marches with them to city hall. There's uh, this line in uh, one of the communist publications where she's marching in a downpour of freezing rain and sleet. She, she has thin clothing on and her shoes are torn. Just this real kind of, tragic vision of her, but she pursues it nonetheless. And she uh, marches to city hall and makes her, her name uh, known. Not only that, she's chosen as a delegate to meet with the mayor at the time. And so she goes up to him and directly says, we will not starve peacefully. And she's, She's totally confrontational in her approach. She talks about how her little boy is starving while the mayor's kids Goes to college, and so she's super upfront and and, and really, you know, no uh, bars held, which is such an amazing moment. But she continues um, to participate with the Communist Party. She's chosen to speak in Washington D.C. Uh, it's a, a real moment how of s- the story of going from uh, a black worker who is disempowered to a point of having her story heard by the mayor of the city. Um, And a lot of it, and it's due to her persistence. It's due to that legacy, a black radical tradition uh, that she is drawing from, but also legacy of black women's activism as well. And so when the communist party, you know, literally comes to her door, they're not making something new. They're not telling her nothing she's heard before. She's like, yeah, okay, I'm ready. Let's do it. And that's, kind of the story of Cleveland there's this one great quote um, from a newspaper that was commenting on, on black workers who got involved in the Cleveland Communist Party saying that uh, the black workers quote may have never heard of Karl Marx and know little of Russia but they do know when they're hungry and cold when they are pushed out of even low wage employment and finally evicted from the dwellings which their neighbors white neighbors burned long ago and so yeah maybe Marx isn't on their bookshelf but they know suffering, they know capitalist exploitation, and they're ready to fight.
1: And in your, your conclusion, you make uh, what I think is a very uh, interesting uh, argument about sort of historical continuity of this moment, right? Um, so you sort of connect the actions of these women in the, in the 1930s uh, to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I wonder if you could just articulate that for people listening.
2: Right. And this goes back to this whole idea of the black radical tradition. Uh, As Cedric Robinson claims, it's it it has its ups and downs, right? Its continuities and its disruptures. But every generation, he says, um, you know, uses the experiences of previous generation to inform theirs and the future. I don't here. I'll just quote him because he says it much better, of course. Uh, Quote, each generation assembles the data of his experiences to an ideology of liberation. And so the black radical tradition is continually evolving and continually changing, but it does draw that momentum, that influence, uh, that foundation from the past. So when you're thinking about Black Lives Matter, um, you have signs like defund the police. That's drawing from, you know, the Ford Hunger Massacre when they had signed that said, we want food, not bullets. Or if you think about the police violence that the Sopkin women uh, faced when they're striking on the streets, that's exactly the same thing about police brutality. Uh, there's numerous stories about how black workers couldn't get health care after they were injured on the job. And life expectancy in black neighborhoods was so much, so much less um, in the 1930s. Well, guess what? In the age of COVID, uh, guess what communities are suffering uh, long term health effects and deaths more? It's black communities again. And so it's that repeat of these familiar stories, uh, the minimum wage, unemployment benefits, all these things. But the new generation, Black Lives Matter, is obviously adding something different. We're adding that element of LGBTQ. We're adding that element of technology, social media to to promote these issues. And we're seeing it as a real point of the, the radical tradition kind of softening and finding a way to reach out to white liberals um, because the rebellion of 2020 is is what historians call uh, Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 um, broke records for Americans protesting, right? And it was estimated that, you know, 15 to 24 million Americans had protested uh, against police brutality. That doesn't happen in 1930s because the 1930s are very rigid with their ideology and interpretation of black radicalism. But the black radicalism now has, um, has transitioned to that a more palatable phase. That said, there are absolutely still those ardent black radical lists who are saying defund the police and white capitalism is uh, antithetical to uh, black existence. And those are amazing voices that continue to be heard because it's those radical voices that push uh, the um, white dominated mainstream a little bit more. Um, towards racial social justice. Ideally, at least, the saying goes that the radicals make the centrists look better um, and hopefully the centrists will, will tend left. And that That's honestly, that's the dream, right? That's the ideals, um, not the lived reality.
1: And so I wonder if there's one takeaway that you would want readers to have after reading your book
2: the Midwest is not a flyover zone. It's not a place where nothing happens. Uh, When I I was working on my dissertation uh, during the Ferguson uprising and all this national news was like, what, how could this happen in Missouri? What's going on in Missouri? What's going on in the American heartland? And I'm like, damn it, aren't you paying attention? This has been going on since the 1930s and even before that. And so my takeaway is that this is not new. This is a an unfortunate continuity there. Yes. Different players, different, uh, events, different posters and placards, but we're essentially, uh, repeating these same arguments. And as a historian, it's so, so, so frustrating. And as a, a human being, even, even more so. So, uh, the black history matters, black Midwest matters. Um, and if we're ignore those histories, if we, uh, Ban people from reading those books or talking about it in classrooms, not only are we doomed to repeat it, we are doomed to
1: fail as a society. Well, Dr. Melissa Ford, we've taken up a lot of your time and thank you so much for being so gracious with that. Uh, so I'll ask one final question. Uh, what are you working on now?
2: Well, i I have now fallen in love with local histories. And so I'm currently uh, located in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is this another great city that has yet to uh, really become a mainstream place of, of study for, for black history. So uh, I want to look at black history in St. Louis, I mean in Pittsburgh and look at the the black women who were um, a part of this struggle. I mean, Pittsburgh is known as the steel city. Let's look at those wives of those steel workers um, because my research in the other cities had shown that there are essential parts of that of that movement.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a really great project, honestly. And it's,
2: <laughs> it's, it's also really easy when you live in the town where the archives are. So uh, for grad students out there, it's, it's okay to look local.
1: <laughs> Indeed, it, it definitely is. Uh, so Dr. Melissa Ford, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed listening from you and the conversation and take care. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure.